Well, this morning um, we turn in God's word for this final sermon in Ready to Grow. And we've looked, just to kind of give you a little bit of a recap uh, to know where we've been, we looked the first week in Matthew chapter 22. Um, verses about 37 through 40 about the, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about if we, we wanna be ready to grow in love for God and for others and that that is fueled by the word. Um, we really looked at the importance and the centrality of the word of God in fueling our love for God and our love for others. Um, and really how it is that God, when he changes our heart, he, he gives us an affection for him and others that comes from him and then it's gonna be fueled by him and his word. Then last week we looked at the importance out of, out of the book of Hebrews um, of looking specifically at the importance that if we wanna grow, we wanna be growing Christians, we need to gather together. Um, just how important it is that God in his design, not our design, we didn't come up with this. This is his design for his body and how we're meant to grow is as we gather. We need to gather in those times of worship corporately like this. We need to gather in those smaller groups like we call them Bible study groups or even getting together in home groups or things like that. Um, those are times where we really grow in our faith as we gather as God's people. And I just wanna, I just wanna promise you if you, if you neglect gathering with a body like it, you know especially for you that are young adults as you begin to make those transitions and and you begin to move and things like that and and right now it's it's over 7 to 8 career changes or job changes now is the average in a career for someone that's entering the workforce right now, that's gonna mean a lot of moves. Listen, um, follow the example of some of your brothers and sisters that have been here just even as of recent, make it hard to move every time. I mean, go, go in so deep with the local body that you're with, wherever you are for however long you're there, that every time it just feels like you're just tearing your heart a little bit. And you say, well, gosh, yeah, that sounds horrible. Listen, that is a life well lived. One where there is relationships here and there's relationships there and there's relationships here. And I mean, you're just like, oh, my heart is just so full because of all these relationships with brothers and sisters who encourage me and that, and that caused, they have caused me at different seasons to grow in some specific ways. I don't know anybody that's gone in deep on relationships that says, no, you shouldn't do that. Isolate. Now that's the way to growth. I, I don't know anybody that says that. So why would we embrace that? So we looked at, at growing in the word and growing in community in our gatherings. And then today, I want you to know this. This is the bottom line takeaway. So if you're taking any notes and you need to write down something, this is what I want you to walk away with. It's this, we grow by making disciples of all nations. That's God's intended path for every one of you. Notice I didn't say missionaries grow by making disciples of all nations. Didn't say that because that's not what the word says. We grow, we grow by making disciples of all nations. And so I want us to see it today in God's word. So I wanna invite you to stand for the reading of God's good word. It's important for you to kind of get the context. Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been buried. Jesus has been raised from the grave. He's been seen now by multiple witnesses. And he's been in, he has now instructed some ladies to tell his disciples, the 11 that remain, to meet him at the specific mountain where he wants to meet them. And now they are seeing the resurrected Jesus, at least in Matthew's edition, for what seems to be the first time. 
They're experiencing him for this first time of really experiencing the reality of the resurrection that Jesus has defeated death itself. Jesus has conquered sin. He's, he has paid the price for our sin. And so it's important for you to get the context as you then enter into verse 16, where it says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, listen to this, they worshiped. Some, some of your translations say they worshiped him. They worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that is to do everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. God, thank you for your word. I pray that today through your word, you would speak to your people to cause them, God, to love you more and to realize that the path of growth that you have given us is a path of being a disciple who makes disciples of all nations. So Lord, bring us in collectively as the people of God into the mission that Christ has given us, both for your glory and God, for our good growth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We grow by making disciples of all nations. But I love what Pastor John Piper says, is that missions only exist because worship doesn't. Missions only exist because worship doesn't. In other words, right now, there are on our planet three billion people with little to no access to the gospel. Right now, in this very moment, there are three billion people with little to no access to the gospel. What do I mean with that? What I mean with that is that right now, there are people in countries like Syria and Afghanistan that if they woke up this morning having had a dream of a man in white telling them to follow me, and they wanna know who is this man? What does it mean to follow him? I, I just, I've had this vision, this dream. Can someone explain it to me? There is no one in their village who can explain the gospel. There is no one in their region to explain the gospel. There is almost no one, maybe only a dozen known believers in a country like Afghanistan. There's almost no one in the entire country to explain the gospel to them, just to tell them who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. That's what it means to there, for there to be little to no access to the gospel. And that doesn't just pertain to a, a lesser populated country like Afghanistan. That pertains to countries that surround what we would call the 1040 window what some organizations are now calling the red zones, these, these pockets of people with millions and millions and billions in their population, countries like India, countries like Pakistan, places where there's densely populated cities that makes New Orleans look like a, like a town, like a little, little country town you would pass through on your way somewhere else. That many people with no or little to no access to the gospel. 
That's where we live currently. And so I want you to see the relevance immediately of a passage like this, that Jesus is speaking to a small group of 11, telling them about the great need for this gospel among all nations. And today, Christ continues to speak to his people and tell them about an, a, a world in need of this gospel that he is sending them to. And so that's what's at stake and that's what we're looking at. But the reality that sets the pace for this entire passage is what happens first. Now, true, there's only one imperative in this passage. In verses 16 down through 20, for you that like grammar, you like to kind of like look and to see what are the parts, there's only one command, okay? There's only one imperative really that's governing this entire passage and it's this, make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. That's the, the imperative. That's what Jesus commands them to do. And you say, well, well, isn't the command to go? That's actually a participle, which means it's part of the work of making disciples of all nations is that we will be going. Another participle in this passage is baptizing, meaning part of the work is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then another participle, teaching. So we're gonna be teaching them to observe, not just to know, not just to like comprehend intellectually, but to obey, to implement, to put into practice the things that he has instructed us, everything that he's commanded. So going, baptizing, teaching under this one heading, but notice what happens first. Notice what we see first that really as I've begun to come back through this passage, and I know this is a familiar passage, but I wanna encourage you to look at it just a little bit differently today. Because you and I, we live in a culture today that is obsessed as believers with what we call worship, with worship. Now, what do we mean when, we, when I say that word? Let me just, you know, like yeah, yeah, the audience participation moment. When I say worship, what do you think of? What do you, as our prayer? Songs? Yeah. I think most of us in this room, most likely when I say, you know, if I, if I go to a church and I say, man, the worship was awesome, I'm most likely, and okay, just check me on my work here, talking about the music, right? Like when you go to a church, you often, if you go to just the service, you're gonna compare or talk about two things. You're gonna talk about the music and the preaching, but you're gonna say the worship is awesome, but man, that guy, Chad, the preaching, uh, you know, like, you know, it's okay, but man, Pastor Nate and the worship team, they make up for it, you know, like, and so they're great. And, and the, so the worship is great, the preaching's okay. That's a lot of times how we talk about churches, the worship and the preaching. In so doing, we have missed it completely. We have defined very narrowly something that, that, that God is saying, no, your whole life is called to this. Every part of your life is called to this thing called worship. You are to worship me with your thoughts. You are to worship me with your actions. You are to worship me with your getting up in the morning and you're going to bed at night. You are to worship me with the way that you treat your neighbors. You are to worship me with the way that you raise your children. You are to worship me with the way that you show up at your job and do your job. You are to worship me in the way that you love the believers. You're to worship me in the way that you study my word. You are to worship me with the affections of your heart. May there be nothing that holds our affection like Christ Jesus. Worship, biblically defined, encompasses everything, but it is found centrally 
in a person. And that person is Jesus. See it in the text. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped. Brothers and sisters, this is another aspect of of what we need to to get in, in our minds is that for a Jewish people, they couldn't help but bodily respond in worship. Full body participation. In other words, without knowing specifically, their worship either looks something like this or something like this or something maybe even like this of worshiping him, bowing before him, prostrate before him. He is worthy of everything. Now, these positions are a little bit less common, right? I mean, it's hard for us sometimes in Baptist circles to even like, you know, lift our hand. We're like, you know, it's like, don't want to, you know, draw too much attention, you know, kind of thing. But for a Jewish audience, man, full body engagement is what we're witnessing there. And when they see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, first thing, this is what really, to me, it sets the pace for what's about to be said. They worship him. They worship him. But what Jesus does immediately, he doesn't tell them like Paul does over in Acts when people start worshiping him, thinking that he's a God. He says, no, no, get up, get up. I'm just a man like you. Do not worship me. Jesus issues no correction. In other words, what Jesus says in this moment is, I am worthy of worship. And he says it by not correcting them, by not turning them away. He says, I am worthy of worship. But then what he does is he defines it. I love this reality of this passage is that what he does in this moment is he helps us to see what is worship. They just worshiped and they just praised him for who he is. But what he then does is he essentially gives definition to what worship is. And I want us to embrace this definition. I want you to embrace this definition, to stop thinking, I only worship when I sing a song. I only worship at the front part of a service and now we're listening to preaching, that's not worship. No, 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 what if, what would it look like if every person in this room made this the definition of worship? They said, no, no, I only worship when I engage this way. This is what worship looks like for me. Can I tell you what we call worship right now in this room will be radically transformed. This will just be a a overflow, a, a just a praise rising up to God because of the worship that's going on Monday through Monday through Saturday, really, you know, every day of the week here in our city, in our neighborhoods, New Orleans, and all nations. And here's what it is. To worship is to make disciples. To worship is to make disciples. You wanna worship God? Then say yes to making disciples. Too many professing Christians have missed it and said, that's just not for me. Making disciples is just, it just doesn't fit me as well. I'm not an extrovert. I don't see that anywhere in the text. I don't see a specific strategy. You know, and I'm just gonna confess, too many pastors sometimes have, have made it that you, you have to go door to door. If you're really serious about, about being a disciple maker, you have to go cold, you know, cold call, knock on people's door. 
What I'm not doing in this moment is, is disparaging it. I have done that and have led people to Christ on their front door porch, you know, like right there on their porch in Gentilly. So I'm not gonna get here and disparage it, but what we've done is we've said, that's really the, that's really the you know, the green berets of, you know, Christianity, they door knock. And if you really wanna be top tier Christian, you gotta door knock. You know, I'm sorry. As a pastor, I'm sorry that sometimes we who are a little bit more typically extroverted have said evangelism has to be done the extrovert way. Yeah, you know, you gotta go up to perfect strangers and, dial, and, and engage in a conversation. I actually enjoy that kind of stuff. You're like, man, I, I knew there was something weird about Chad. I, I, I enjoy meeting a new person. I enjoy hearing a new story about somebody's life and that backstory and, and engaging them and asking questions and just walking away with this, you know, new form knowledge about who a person is. But that's because in part, God wired me that way. But half of you in this room are introverts. And what I've just described of door knocking, you're like, this, if this is how this sermon ends, I'm looking for a new church. You know, like if that's like, if that's the only application point, I'm out. No, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to look just one way. But listen, do not let a method, do not let a model of disciple making make you decide, I'm gonna say either yes or no to Jesus on his command to you as a disciple of Jesus Christ to make disciples. You're in a position right now of either saying yes or no to him. Later is not an option. Yes or no. Yes or no to making disciples. You see, we've already looked that making disciples invites us by God's grace. Just understand this. To use an illustration from last week, when we talk about physical training and getting our bodies in shape and all those kind of things, how many of you that have ever gone down that journey where you have dropped some weight, where you've gotten in better shape, you maybe set a goal for running a race, a, a half marathon or a marathon or any of those kind of things, and then you actually got over the hump of that initial pain where it was like everything hurts and I'm just angry because I'm hungry and all those kind of things, and you actually started feeling good. How many Many of you are like, not worth it though. No. So many of you then become the biggest advocate for that way of life, right? You, you begin telling your friends like, now I'm telling you, if you'll just cut some of those carbs, I'm telling you, like, you know, it's gonna, you're gonna feel better after lunch. If you wanna eat such a, a carb heavy lunch, you know, like that crash, yeah, that's, that's why, you know? So like, you just need to stick to vegetables and fruits and protein at lunch, man, you'll feel so much better. And you start advocating for these new diets and these new approaches. And man, you just need to, you need to walk 30 minutes a day or you need to drink a cup full of water every morning when you get up or apple cider vinegar that's the stuff, you know, that makes all the difference. You know, we find all these things, right, that work for us and that make us feel better. And what do we do? We begin to tell people, this is the way, walk in it. <laughs> but you, you should do this, you're gonna feel better. Can I tell you that you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of believers who have embraced this definition of worship, that it means to make disciples. Worship means to make disciples of all nations who have begun to walk in it who then turn to their brothers and sisters and say, guys, this is living. This is living. Seeing God change people. I, there's not a single person going to Rivard right now that's doing it just to like check some boxes. There's not a single person that I know right now that is going to Rivard Juvenile Detention Center on the West Bank in order to bring the gospel to young men and some young ladies over there that are incarcerated for whatever 
for whatever reason, but are image bearers made in the image of God for whom Christ died, bringing the gospel into those places and seeing God transform the lives of these young men and these young ladies who are saying, not worth it though. There really probably is a better way for me to spend my Thursday evenings. No, they're like, this is living, this is living. And they invite other people to go with them and to experience it. Brothers and sisters, missional living, doctrinal, I mean, gospel doctrine. This is part of what it means to make disciples is to experience the richness of gospel doctrine. Notice that Jesus says, baptizing them in the name singular. And then he says three names. Anybody ever notice that? He says the name and then says three names, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's like, well, it almost seems like he's saying there's one being who is eternally three persons. Huh. Little doctrine we call the Trinity. And if anybody, if, you know, you get, you listen on Facebook or YouTube or whatever, you're going to hear somebody say, oh, the Trinity is a made up word. It's not in the Bible and it's a made up doctrine and all that. This is where it's derived from in large measure. This is a go-to text about what is the Trinity? Well, it's one being God who is eternally, eternally, forever, always has been, always will be, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we derive that right from here, the singular, the name of then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know that that's gospel doctrine. God is inviting you into truth when you make disciples, because when you begin to make disciples and then you begin to grapple with, well, what does it mean to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? You know what you're thinking about? God, God as he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are brought squarely centered to the gospel once again to be baptized. I mean, like to be buried with Christ. Well, yeah, you're grappling with the gospel, but then you're thinking about the very nature of God. That God, How is it that this one being is three persons? Welcome to theology. Ponder these things. I mean, we sit and think about all kinds of things that really within just one news cycle, you're like, why was I even thinking about that? Why did I let that consume my thoughts? Why, was, why did I let that be so interesting that I like went down the rabbit hole? Can I tell you, God is inviting you into a doctrinal pursuit of him, grounded in gospel truth, gospel doctrine, just by committing your life to make disciples and then a life to faithful obedience, observing everything that I have commanded you. Over and over and over again, I have conversations with, with people, especially young adults, as they are they're, they're on that beginning journey and they're like, you know, gosh, is, is this okay or this okay? You know, like, should I do this or should I do that? I'm grappling with, you know, this or that, this or that. Can I tell you that I'm convinced that at least 98% of what your life is going to look like is defined? And that other 2%, should I move to Seattle or stay in New Orleans? I, if the reason is why well, just more money, then already God's word is cautioning you about a love of money. And that that's no longer how you make decisions is where's the most money? Who pays the most? Because then that becomes your God. And every time your God comes calling, you follow him. Does, does, does my God lead me here? Does my God lead me there? Where does my God lead me? Always to the next highest paying job. And can I tell you that that God destroys families? That God destroys marriages? 
that God destroys your life. When you follow that God wherever he leads, but one that's committed themselves to making disciples, they say, well, where can I most effectively make disciples? What will it be in Seattle or New Orleans? That becomes a new litmus test, how I make these ultimate big decisions about whether I go here or there, whether I stay or I go. You're leveraging your life and your career for the sake of making disciples. And you say, well, Chad, but easy for you to say you're a pastor. No, let me correct you for just one second. Not easy for me to say. It's not easy being a pastor. Contrary to maybe common belief, you know, like that I work just Sunday mornings. Uh, not true. Just gonna go ahead and correct that one real quick. Not true at all. Wish it was that easy, but actually not. Because I enjoy working. I enjoy diligently doing my job. Just like you do. Just like we, we are created in Christ Jesus to do, to work hard with our own hands so that we have something to share with those in need. And so like you, I wanna live a life of generosity. Like you, I want to serve Christ in a real sense with my life. I don't want it to just be a job. And listen, you and I share that in common. You don't want your job just to be a job either. I'm telling you, that's what kind of empties your soul and drives you down is when you, you see like this job is, it, it's, it's distracting me, it's pulling me down. It's just, it's, it's not giving me any life. Maybe you need a career change. Maybe you should go to the God who created you and ask him, God, what do you want me to spend my career doing to bring glory to your name so that I can effectively make disciples as an architect, as a, as a teacher, as someone working, doing welding, as a nurse, as a doctor, as a lawyer. God, I, I, I want to give my life, my occupation to you to make disciples of all nations. And can I tell you that when you step into that orientation, God, this is for you. I want to do this for you. I want to leverage my life for the gospel. God begins to completely recreate, recreate your eight to five. He begins to transform what your days look like. And in fact, you even begin to start thinking a little bit differently about where you could do your job. Some dear friends were just here just a few weeks ago. He, he is a, a controller for Shell, work, lives over in Houston, works for Houston, has uh, graduated from UNO and their Naval Architecture Program. So, you know, a, a local guy in some ways, you know, went up, shot up like a, like a rising star, you know, at Shell. And yet he and his family with his three young boys, they have considered that a move to the other side of the world, to a nation that is primarily Middle Eastern, is the right way to spend the next several years of their life in order to bring the gospel to that part of the world. And you wanna know how he's doing it? Not with the IMB, not as a commissioned missionary in the way that we typically think. He's living missionally, living missionally as a controller in a huge oil company. Gonna do his job with excellence, but to do it in a place where he knows there's little to no access to the gospel in order to hopefully bring the gospel to other people in that industry. People that when he goes to the grocery store that he can begin to love and to pray for. 
to be that little speck of light in a very dark place for the glory of God. Get the picture of what life could look like when you say, yes, I will worship you, God, by making disciples. Second, what we see is the reason for this is Christ desires for worship to be multiplied. In other words, he is not satisfied with the worship of the 11. He doesn't say in this moment, this is enough, this is enough. No, instead, he is pleased with their worship and then says, we need more of this. This is how you were created to thrive and to live and to grow is to worship me. So now go and make disciples of all nations, all nations. You see, some of the sobering statistics that we need to be aware of concerning those hard to reach places. Remember the 3 billion I talked about just a moment ago? The 3 billion right now who have little to no access to the gospel, right now in all of our giving from evangelical sources, so not even just the IMB, not just you know the Southern Baptist Convention, but when you count all of the dollars that are given to missional efforts right now, only one to 2% of those missional dollars are being spent to bring the gospel to the 3 billion. You say, where's the money going? It's going to good things. Can I tell you that? It's going to good things. You see, it's a, it's a good thing when people from America band together, oftentimes in large groups, 20, 30, I've even seen groups of 100, and then they go to the border of Texas and Mexico and they cross over and they drive an hour down and they set up shop in a place where there's a lot of poverty, and what they do in those moments is they will often build a, help build a church building or help paint a church building or you know, kind of do some capital improvements. And they'll spend a lot of time with children in that place, loving them, caring for them, giving gifts to them, maybe bringing things like clothing or shoes and all those kind of things. And then after that week, they, they return home. And can I tell you, that was good. Please don't hear me for one second saying that was bad, boy. That's just so bad that we would do something like that. But can I tell you, there are millions and millions and millions of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ right now in Mexico. Right now, there are people everywhere, healthy churches, churches that we could learn from of what it means to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in places like Monterey, Mexico right now. I've partnered with them. I've gone them myself. I've heard the preaching of God's word then, you know, interpreted for me. You know, I don't speak Spanish, but, but I've heard it. Man, they are preaching the gospel in these places and praise to his name. But in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iran, there is no one getting up on a Sunday morning to preach the gospel. There is no one prayer walking their neighborhood in those places. There is no access to the gospel. And you say, well, well, then why are we sending money to places like Mexico when we should be helping get places? Because it's really difficult. A lot of those places, the darkness is so prevalent, they don't want the truth of the gospel. In fact, they, they even say, if, if you bring the truth of the gospel here and we're found and you're found leading other people out of the faith that we hold, that is our, our state religion, Islam, you will be killed. You will be arrested. You will be sent back to your country never to return to ours. 
These are the penalties in some of these places. So that's why it's so difficult. But is it any less urgent? Is it any less important to get the gospel to those sorts of places? Brothers and sisters, we have to begin to prioritize our own thinking in those sorts of ways because it's so easy to forget the three billion and just to focus on those other places where the gospel already is because those partnerships are so ready. They're saying, no, come, please come help. And we should, but we cannot neglect the three billion who have never heard. I am so thankful that our last two partnerships that we have pursued as a church have been in North Africa and in Central Asia in some of the darkest places in the world. That's why we're going to North Africa. That's why we're prioritizing relationships in Central Asia is because we don't wanna lose sight of the three billion. We wanna be part of bringing the gospel to those parts. But then some of you right now, already I can feel the tension right now, but Chad, what about New Orleans? What about New Orleans? Notice that it's often those who bring the gospel the furthest who proclaim it loudest right here at home. Notice this, many times those that are bringing the gospel the furthest and the most concerned with getting it to the ends of the earth that are the clearest and the loudest with it right here at home. You see, I have yet to really experience a member of a church that was committed to missions over there that said, I don't care about anybody here. I don't care if anybody in my family comes to Christ. I don't care if anybody in my neighborhood or my city. No, many times there's a direct correlation between those that are going the furthest and those that are reaching the deepest right here in New Orleans. So I wanna encourage you as a church, whether you ever go to the other side of the world or not, may it be in your heart that you are concerned with seeing worshipers, worshipers created in places like North Africa and Central Asia. And then Christ makes clear that the only way that we will be sustained in this work of worshiping him by making disciples of all nations and seeing worshipers multiplied, the only way that we will be sustained in this work is this, I am with you always. Isn't it good to know that he is with us always in this thing of worship? And you say, well, Chad, you know, I think you made a leap today. I never saw the word grow in this passage. I, I never saw where, where Jesus said, you'll grow if you make disciples of all nations. True. It doesn't say that in that exact way. Instead, what we see is the remainder of the New Testament as the evidence. The remainder of the New Testament is the story of the church of Jesus Christ, members just like you growing and growing and growing in their faith and their love and their hope for God as the gospel advances, as the gospel goes further and further and further to the ends of the earth. That's actually the story of the rest of the New Testament. That's what unfolds in Acts the reason we even have letters like 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians is because those were cities were formerly, they were basically like Afghanistan. Those were cities that formerly were like Syria or Iran or North Africa, like Yemen 
or Somalia. Those were places where the gospel was not known and then the gospel went to these places. And as they went, they went with gospel proclamation. Did you know that every time that we gather and especially when we worship through taking of these elements, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you didn't receive one of these when you came in and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we wanna invite you to participate. You can just lift your hand where you are and we have deacons that would be glad to bring these elements to you to be able to worship in this way. But listen to me. What a shame. What an absolute pity it would be to take of this cup and to take this bread and proclaim his death without proclaiming his death. Just let that sink in for a moment. To come in here and to take this as an act of worship and divorce it from what it says in the text that this is to be proclaimed. This is to be made known. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and died, literally his flesh given for you and his blood shed to, to create a new covenant, a new promise with God of peace, of forgiveness, of eternal life, a new covenant to proclaim it in this room, in the, in, in the privacy of this place, but not to proclaim it in our neighborhoods, to not proclaim it in New Orleans, to not proclaim it among the nations, is to take it wrongly. It's not just about, do I have any other sins I need to hurry up and confess before I, no, no, no. I think the greatest miss, the greatest sin of the church is to divorce the proclamation that we're about to, to proclaim right now of his death and truly of his resurrection and to divorce that from the commission of Christ Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. So today, I want you to take just a moment before you take this to spend with the Lord and if there's unconfessed sin in your life, you need to enter into a space right now of just being honest with God and remembering that when he died, he covered over all of your sin, but it is good and right for you to confess to the Lord shortcomings and failures. But can you be honest for just a moment before the Lord and ask him, ask him to give you the courage to commit your life to worshiping him by making disciples of all nations. That's what it means to proclaim his death until he comes. Not just a once a month piece of bread and cup. No, proclaim his death by making disciples of all nations. I'm gonna give you just a moment to spend with the Lord and then I'll lead us in taking these elements. God's word says, for I received from the Lord, but I also passed on to you that on the night when he, Jesus, was betrayed, 
the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take in remembrance of Christ Jesus. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take in remembrance of Christ. For as often as you eat this drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, we are preparing the world, our neighborhoods, our city, New Orleans and all nations for the coming of the Lord. And it is only through the proclamation of his death and of his resurrection. Will you stand with me? worship in these moments. If you need to pray, I invite you to do that at your seat, maybe to come and kneel at these steps. And if today you want to follow Jesus Christ, I wanna talk to you about what that means right here as we worship.